everyone. Welcome to episode 107 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And it's a warm, steamy day in Connecticut today. Indeed it is. We are under like a heat advisory today. It's going to be feeling like it's up in the hundreds today, which is unusual for us on the shoreline here. Hartford might get a bit more heat, but uh, down here on the shoreline, we're not used to that. Not at all. And I don't do well in the heat. I will like a little flower. Yeah. And I, I got in the water this morning. I was able to hop in the water before we recorded and I swear steam was coming off of me. So yes. I'm, I'm grateful. I don't know how people in the South do it. I give y'all mad props. Ugh. I wouldn't be able to do anything for the entire summer. Yeah. So what are you currently reading, Chris? Well, I'm currently reading two. Um, I am still listening tonight by Ellie Wiesel on audio. I have like about a half hour to go on that. And um, the other book I'm reading, I'm surprised to find myself reading it. But here I am reading it. I don't usually read such books, but this is too much and never enough. How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man by Mary L. Trump. Oh, wow. So this is the book about how Donald Trump was created by his family. And Mary Trump is a, a psychologist. And so I love books by psychologists. So that's one reason I was interested in it. Because I really don't read books about political figures. I downloaded the preview and was reading the preview. And I was engaged by it. So I decided to buy it. So along with 950,000 other people who purchased the book on day one of this wow. book's release... I'm reading that book. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was a it's the I think it's this well it was definitely the biggest first day sales for the publisher. But it's not the biggest first day sale of a book that still belongs to JK Rowling for her Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows which on the release day sold 8.3 million books. Holy which is mind-boggling. Uh, but you yeah, know, that was a worldwide coordinated release. But um, yeah, so this book, Too Much and Never Enough, it is it is interesting. Mary Trump is his niece. So she is the daughter of Trump's brother, Fred, who died. And so she's talking a lot about her memories of things within the family and then also stories she'd heard from the older generation about interactions with her grandfather and grandmother, um, Fred Trump Sr., I guess, who she considers a sociopath. So I'm just about a little bit over 30% in. So that is what I am reading. And I hope you have a different type of book that you're currently reading. <laughs> well, I just want to say about that book, I know there was a lot of legal drama around it and um, that Trump really tried to have it, have the publisher not be able to release it. And it went up to the high courts it and did. they ruled in her favor. So Yeah, they did. Because I guess one of the legal issues was that there was a, a non-disclosure agreement signed when Fred Sr. died and the will was just, you know, dispersed his uh, estate. And so the family had to sign non-disclosure agreements about that, which we know is a big thing in the Trump world. And yeah. the judge, judges ruled that a family agreement had no 
legal bearing in the wider world, especially when now one of these people is a public figure of the President of the United States. That is still a civil matter, so they can still pursue her legally on the civil side, but as far as publishing the book and the publisher, it's all down to free speech. So I'm currently reading Share Me and Major Whittlesley by Kathleen Rooney. She's the author of Lillian Bockfish Takes a Walk, mm-hmm. which was a book that both of us read back in the day. Um, this I gotta stop a... you, Emily. I did not read that book. Oh, I didn't okay. read it. I did start reading this current one, her the new one, I, and I okay. am enjoying it. You put this, but you never read Lillian Boxfish. No, okay. I did not. Okay. Okay. Well, she was a Booktopia author, and um, she was there with that book. But this book is coming out on August 11th, and Kathleen's going to be our guest coming up on a future episode. So I won't talk about the book too much. All I will say is it's about World War One heroes from two different perspective and one of the perspectives is a homing pigeon (laughs) i can't say i've ever written read a book from the perspective of a pigeon yes (laughs) a very different view (laughs) yes indeed and then we think we're short (laughs) no i'm just kidding um and then the other perspective is from her keeper Major Whittlesley. I don't I'm not I think I'm adding L's to that name. Whittlesey. It's hard for me to say that word. So I'm a few chapters in. It's really grabbed me from the start. It's very sweet. The book starts where the pigeon is now um no longer alive and is in a museum. Yeah, he's but, stuffed, he's been taxidermied. I Right. <laughs> I was so drawn in right away to that pigeon's voice. Yeah. Indeed. So again, that's called Share a Me and Major Whittlesey, and that's out on August 11th, and you will definitely be hearing more about that book. So what have you just read, Emily? Well, I just finished With or Without You by Carolyn Levitt. This book is out on August 4th. I love Carolyn Levitt. When you pick up one of her books, you just know you're going to be in good hands. She tells a great story, and this story is about a young woman, or a couple, I should say, who the male partner is a a musician, and they're at the point in their lives, they're not married, they're in a relationship, they're kind of trying to figure out where the relationship's going, and his band is doing well, and they're about to travel, and she's going to go with him, and before the night before they're supposed to take off, something happens and she ends up in a coma and Carolyn Lovett in real life was in a coma. So she too is going to be an upcoming guest on the Cougars. And we're going to definitely ask her about that experience. How intense. Yeah. But what happens, you know, in, when you go into a coma for a lot of people is that the brain literally rewrites itself and you wake up and you are transformed somehow And for the character in this book, she now is an amazing artist. She can paint people's portraits and she, when she paints them, it's almost as if she can see into them and learn something about them through her portrait. So people are very drawn to her and commission her work. And so it's really about the journey of, of what happens when you're in a relationship and you change and the other people that you're in relationships with change as well, but not necessarily 
together and with and all of that. So there's also a little bit of, you know, um, relationship unrest that takes place and things like that. I can imagine. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, And the other, I would say the other theme I just want to talk about is that there is another character who's a doctor and a friend of the woman, Stella, who's the one that had a coma. Stella was a nurse before she got sick. So you can see the tremendous difference there, right? Going from being a nurse to being an artist. Mm -hmm. And her friend, Libby, who's a doctor who she was a coworker with and then also became a caretaker of Stella when she was in her coma. Also, there's a thread in the book about her history and her past and a, a dramatic event that took place with her and her brother that informed who she became as a person. So she's also on a journey. I hate, I keep using that word, the journey, but we all are on one. And um, so it talks about that as well and how the brain is a tricky place. And if we don't work through some of our experiences in life, it manifests later in different ways. So I highly recommend it. You can put it on request now from your library, pre-order it with or without you by Carolyn Levitt. Nice. Well, I also recently read a book that's dealing with brains. This is called Driven to Distraction, Recognizing and Coping with Attention Deficit Disorder from Childhood Through Adulthood. This is by two MDs, Edward M. Hallowell and John J. Rady, R-A-T-E-Y, and it was a book that was recommended to me, and I've seen it recommended as recommended reading in other books I've read about executive dysfunction disorders, which I've talked about in past episodes, and it was really eye-opening. One of the interesting things is they talk about how, much like global warming, was maybe not necessarily the best name for the phenomenon that's happening in the world because people can't comprehend that it could be snowing and it's there's still global warming happening attention deficit disorder most people think about hyperactivity when they hear it and it's not necessarily that especially the way it manifests mainly in girls who don't have the hyper may not have the hyperactivity component or as an adult they may not be that whirling dervish of an adult. So it's really great. It's, um, it's a book that helps you, uh, you know, they're, they're very careful to say, make sure you get a professional diagnosis. Don't diagnose yourself. But if you've had somebody in your family or perhaps you yourself have been diagnosed, I would totally recommend this book. It's very helpful. It gives great actionable suggestions on how to manage your own ADD or help your child or how to live with somebody who has it. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I mean, I also think it's really important not to self-medicate, you know, that if you can read a book like that and understand it, and as they say, get professional help, then you can set off on the right path, right? Absolutely. And one of the things they talk about is, um, you know, having a, a therapist, but also there are ADD coaches who are certified to help people with their life, living their life with ADD. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So again, that's Driven to Distraction by Edward Hallowell and John Rady. That sounds great, Chris. Yeah, it was. I read Transcendent Kingdom by Yagyasi. Oh, I'm so excited to hear about this book. Oh, 
my gracious. I'm going to go out on a limb and say something I never say. This book is going to win some serious awards. All right. I think. I really do think that. It's it's out September 1st. I'm sorry. It's not out yet. That's just <laughs> around the corner. Pre-order it. Get your library to get a million copies. So for those of you where that name sounds familiar, her debut novel was Homegoing, which people raved about. I love that book. And that is one that I feel like should have won a lot more awards, got a lot more attention. Sorry, I interrupted. (laughs) No, no, I know. Well, I was going to say my sob story about that book is it's one of those books I was reading on my e-reader from the library and it got sucked off mid-sentence and I never finished it and it's been one of those that has just you know like it weighs on me a little bit so when I saw she had a new book I was like all right Emily just get the new one and read it and now of course it just makes me want to read Homegoing all the more right so it didn't really solve that issue I'm just gonna get the book and read it this so this is her second novel it's a Ghanaian immigrant family that lives in Alabama a family of four and part of the novel is about, you know, their struggle to fit in in Alabama and um, for her parents to make a living, which is not easy. But the main character is Gifty, who's a young girl. She's the um, second child. She has an older brother, Nana. And where we meet her, she's studying neuroscience now in at Berkeley. I think she's getting her graduate degree in neuroscience or something like that. So she's obviously very intelligent. She's studying addictive behavior in mice. It's very interesting. And what Gyasi does in this novel is then she weaves the story of Gifty's youth, where there are members of her family who end up having addictive behaviors and depression that have serious impact on the family. I'm trying not to issue any spoilers. I highly recommend (laughs) you do not read what this book is about. I got on Goodreads after I read it and read what it was about, and I was shocked at some of the spoilers in the description. Oh, boy. Oh, because to me, the pleasure of this book was just unearthing what she was doing with the story, mm-hmm. you know, and there were some real surprises in the story to me that they just spell right out in the Goodreads description. That's too bad. Thanks for that heads up. Everybody pay yeah. attention to that. Cause I think that's really important. I mean, some people, I guess it doesn't matter to them, but I'm totally on board with you. I like to not know that much and, and enjoy the unfolding of a story and the surprises that happen. I'm completely that way. I mean, I don't read reviews of books until after I'm done, unless it's a book I know I'm not going to read, and then I love reading reviews, you know? Yeah. But, um, you know, the thing, one of the things, and the reason I think I love this book so much is because I have experience with addiction in my own personal family, and what's fascinating to me about addiction is why some people are addicted and some aren't. And not only that, but even people who have addictive behavior, some of them say, well, tomorrow I'm just not going to do this anymore. And they don't. Whereas others battle an addiction for the rest of their life, you know. And so she really talks about it in the sense of like, you know, you're reading her with these experiments on the mice where, and I'm sorry, this might upset some people who don't believe in animal testing, but where, you know, a mouse, they know if they go to get this thing that she's feeding them it's a sweet you know liquid essentially that they're attracted to they're going to get a a little zap 
you know, Mm -hmm. and some mice turn around and like, oh, I'm not going to do that. That hurts. And others, it doesn't matter. They will zap, zap, zap because that thing tastes good or feels well that in this case, it doesn't feel good, obviously, but yeah, you know, yeah, that's a classic study. Yeah. 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 And so it's really, she's just a brilliant writer. I just loved this book so much. There also is a thread of evangelical faith. She was raised in the evangelical faith. Her mother is very devout. And as she grows into a woman, she kind of lets that go away. But she's, you know, so she's dealing with both the science and the faith, right, Mm -hmm. in this novel. So again, Transcendent Kingdom, Yagiyasi, when did I say it was out? Um, September. September 1st. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, so much going on about neurobiological things, you know, I mean, that's the ADD book, Carolyn Lovett's book with the rewriting the brain, rewriting yeah. the brain. And then, and the, this book, I think it's really something that we're also fascinated with because of the changes that happen in the brain, even for an individual or that are hereditary. Yeah. You know, because yeah. ADD, like addiction, is part, you know, some of the strains are hereditary. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Wow. So another book I read was The Deep by Alma oh, yeah. Tetsu. I'm holding up the book for Emily to see the cover because I love this cover. It has um, like the bow of the Titanic, you know, with the moonlit glow behind it. And underneath it is a figure of a woman rising up to break the waves. So this book, as some readers or some listeners might remember, I read her previous novel called The Hunger, which I discussed on episode 67. Really love The Hunger. Um, This new book, The Deep, just came out and I really enjoyed it. It's, you know, it's I've been reading a lot of haunted house stories and this is a haunting story it is a little bit more maybe on the literary side than a thriller although it definitely has the thriller elements so it's maybe a little bit more of a slow burn I'm not sure I know every people have different understandings of that but for me it was it was a slower pace than another book I recently read about a haunting but the action takes place in two different time periods that are not that far apart 1912 and 1916 what the two storylines have in common are two of the characters, one of them named Violet Jessup, who was a real person. She actually uh, lived. Mm. She actually survived both the sinking of the Titanic and the Titanic sister ship, the Britanna. Is that what that's called? Let me look that up real quick. Britannic. That's the name of it. Wait a minute. Hold up. Yeah. She 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 survived the Titanic and then she got herself back on another boat. <laughs> yes. So so this is the situation. Um in, you know 1912 the Titanic was a luxury liner and Violet along with her fictional friend Annie Annie Hubley is the main kind of like the main character in the book. A- Annie is. Um but they were maids on the Titanic both from families that had a lot of sea service in their background from Ireland. And so the Titanic goes down, Violet stays in service, and Annie has been in an asylum in Liverpool. Mm. And Violet writes her a letter saying, 
1916. World War One is in full swing. She is now working as a nurse on the Britannica. Why can't I get that name right? Britannic. I was because like, you're thinking of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Britannica, that must be it, right? <laughs> um, so she's now a nurse on the Britannic, and she writes to Annie saying, you know, you need to join me. We need women, and you could become a nurse and serve. So the director of the asylum also says to her, you know, it's time for you to leave because we basically need beds for the wounded men coming from the front. So she is in the asylum as a patient, though. Well, it's kind of unknown. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is she Got just it. there resting, recuperating? Something traumatic happened beyond okay. beyond just the sinking of the Titanic. Something right. else happened. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, so the Titanic went down in 1912 because it hit that iceberg. Right. The Britannic then, which was the sister ship, was outfitted to correct the problems that the Titanic had. But that ship was, and unfortunately it hit a mine. Oh my gosh. And went down during the war. But this person, Violet Jessup, she actually survived both. And she wrote a memoir. So I'm really interested. Um, They said that that, I've, I've read a couple of comments about that memoir and people have said it's a really great look into women in sea service, which you don't have a lot of memoirs um, about women who spent their life in sea service. Anyway, I went through a phase where I read a ton of memoirs about women who purchased boats and, you know, did trips and things like that. Um, But anyway, getting away from the novel, The Deep. In her author's notes at the end, uh, Katsu says that one of the things she learned from her tour of the hunger was that her readers really wanted to know about the research. And she makes the comment that, you know, she did do research for the hunger, but the research she did for the deep just completely eclipses that. Wow. So it's a, it's a really good read from the historical point of view, I guess. But the main thing is, is Anna's experience. Here she is, you know, she's traumatized from the sinking of the Titanic and other things that have happened. She has no family that she knows of. And here she is, this alone woman going now into service on the Britannica, Britannic to become a nurse. Wow. And so the, it had been a luxury liner as well, but it was outfitted now to be a hospital ship. Right. So you get these characters from both ships and both types of experiences you know from the wealthy extreme people on the titanic and then the people in the lower decks and a haunting that may be happening there and i'll just leave mm. it at that i don't want to say too much because again it, it is a good unfolding too it was also over 400 pages so it counts as uh, a book read towards Sue's Big Book Summer Reading Challenge. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I really I really enjoyed the novel and look forward to reading more from her. And, you know, actually, Katsu had a couple novels before The Hunger. She had The Taker, The Reckoning, The Descent, hmm. which I wasn't aware that. I, I For some yeah. reason, I think I thought The Hunger was her first book, from yeah. my memory anyway. So this is The Deep by Alma Katsu. It is available now. And what was the name of the, the real life character? Was Violet? Is that what you said? Yeah, Violet was... Jessup. J-E-S-S-O-P. 
I hope the name of her memoir is I'll Never Step Foot on a Ship Again. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I don't really know, but I believe that even after the Britannic went down that she served, maybe, there is a character in the book who has survived multiple ships going down. And, you know, when you come from a seafaring family and that is what the family does, that is kind of part of the life. Yeah, and I guess an argument can be made if you survived, you know, like, hmm, you'll survive again, right? Yeah, well, and you got to understand, too, this is just when cars were starting to become more popular. And, you know, how many, I mean, I've been in several car accidents and I still drive. Point taken. You know, so it was a different mode of travel. It was how people traveled back then. Yeah, and work. And work, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And many people still do work that way, so... Mm -hmm. The other book that I read was called The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates. Shout out to our listener, Tony, who sent an email, um, a really lovely email. Thank you. We do love hearing from our listeners. And she was really just sending a nice email to say hello. But then she also, we had said, you know, we would love to hear suggestions of audiobooks. And she'd sent a list of suggested audiobooks. And this one was on it. And this book, when it came out, I was so excited to read it. And then of course, it's one of those, you know, as our piles grow, you just kind of forget about it. So thank you, Tony, for reminding me about it. I did get it on audio through Libro FM. Reminder to listeners that we're an affiliate. So if you go to Libro FM and use the promo code book cougars, you get you, you basically get two credits for the price of one. So you pay, you get two credits in your shopping cart right away. And Libro FM, the cool thing about it is it does support independent bookstores. Yeah. So we, and their platform is really easy to use. I loved using it for the moment of lift. This is read by Melinda Gates. For those of you who don't know, she is the Melinda Gates of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is the biggest foundation in the world. The story is really about her meeting Bill, her years in the tech world, because she was the first female MBA that came to Microsoft back in the day when it was just a new, new, new company starting out, how she met Bill, and then how how their relationship developed. Very little about that. I don't want you to think it's very much about that. But then about the foundation and how the foundation has grown, how her role in the foundation has grown. When they first started it, she really took quite a backseat. But as time went on, she really became the face of the foundation in a lot of ways. And so very much to say about this book. I mean, I was pulling over on the side of the road and scribbling notes. I was writing notes on small pieces of paper everywhere, all over my house as I was listening to it. The main takeaways for her are, if you want to lift up humanity, empower women. Nice. And that's so much what the book is about. And she tells a lot of personal stories about people that she's met. And then also weaves in how that impacted her and how she had to look at her own family life also. And um, she's also a devout Catholic and how that fits into the scheme of her philanthropic work. She feels very strongly about birth control and that helping women be able to plan how they have and grow their family is very important to how they can thrive as people Mm -hmm. and how their family can thrive. So that was something she had to really take stock of because in the Catholic faith, you know, many 
people in the higher levels of that faith do not believe in birth control that I think that is changing somewhat. But it's something that she really talked about in this book. She also talked a lot about gender bias, gender bias in a lot of countries and how that affects people. And one of the studies she talked about in the book is how there there's a study now that shows that if men do at least 40% of the childcare after children are born, that they actually have the same hormone release that women have and can bond with their children the same way. Wow, Whereas it's, isn't that great? Yeah. Whereas it's always kind of been, you know, like, oh, men can never have that bond with the children because they didn't, you know, the children weren't in their bellies and, you know, mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. So I thought that was really interesting. She talked a lot about how people are pushed to the outside, you know, in society and how we have to bring everybody together and lift everybody up. That's what the moment of lift, she uses the term lift a lot through the book, and I really loved it. One of the things about the audio that I thought was interesting, I, I had this moment where I was like, I couldn't imagine anyone else narrating this book. It was the same way I felt about Becoming by Michelle Obama, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it would have been weird if someone else read that book. It was such a personal book. Yeah. And this one was the same. I could go on and on and on about this book. I won't. But... <laughs> I do feel like it gave me a lot of hope. There are some people who think that Bill and Melinda Gates are going to be the answer to how we get out of the COVID epidemic. You know, he predicted, Bill Gates predicted a pandemic a while back and said that the world and our country were not prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And that has come to be true. So I know that they are very invested in, in their foundation with vaccinations and things like that. I heard Roxanne Gay say the other day on somewhere that Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates are going to save us all. You know, I don't know. That's a lot of pressure. We'll see about that. <laughs> but I know that vaccinations are one of their big focuses. Mm -hmm. So um, and actually, that's an interesting story she tells is that that was their number one focus at the beginning. And when they were out in the world delivering vaccinations, the women were coming to them and saying, where's my shot? Where's my pill? And they didn't know what they were talking about. And then finally, it came to be that they wanted birth control. Yeah. You know, wow. so that's how she really went down that path. So. That's excellent. And I think I yeah, I mean, this is a total sidebar, but I also believe birth control is a class issue. Mm -hmm. You know, Definitely. as well as a gender issue. And I think, you know, wealthier people will always have access to birth control and it's not a burden for them. Mm -hmm. But people who rely on health care coverage, that is an important part. And unfortunately, the courts haven't been ruling in favor of our current health care situation. Yep, that's true. Yeah. And it's, in my opinion, a basic human right. Yes. So, yeah, that's a good point, Chris. So again, The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates, and it was a fantastic audio. Excellent. I'm putting that one on my list for sure. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Emily. Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right, the last book I read since the last time we talked, I actually just finished it late last night, is The Amityville Horror. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. By Jay Anson. I read this book way back when I was young, um, it came out in 1977, and the movie came out in 79, and I read it around that time. It scared me, as the cover says, this book will scare the hell out of you. 
it did back then for sure. You know, I remember just being so terrified reading it, but I enjoyed that feeling back then. The second <laughs> time around as a 54 year old woman, it wasn't quite as scary. The writing is actually quite bad. <laughs> and this book might be a contender for the most exclamation points in any book ever published. <laughs> so many exclamation points. And, That'd be a fun award to give out. Right, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was enjoyable, though. I mean, it's such a fast read. I have a mass market paperback here that I checked out of the library. It's 315 pages. Such a quick read. I just checked mm -hmm. it out, what, on Thursday? I think I started yeah. reading it Friday. I finished it Saturday. It was an enjoyable read. It was not as horrifically sexist as I initially thought it would be because in a mass market paperback typically when you open the front cover there's a teaser blurb of some kind about the book and the teaser blurb that they gave and I posted this on my social media was about the main woman character Kathleen Lutz who's young young blonde haired housewife with pale soft skin um, mm. one of the horror things that happens is she is transformed into a 90-year-old woman. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like, so out of all the horrible things and scary things that happen in this novel, that's the blurb that the publishers right. chose as a teaser? <laughs> like, you know, sexist, ageist crap. Um, but inside of the book, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, although there was some typical sexist things like, wives being patted on the butt by their husband oh nice at one point kathleen is even patted on the head by her husband <laughs> right i mean she's scared and he pats her on the head i'm like oh my god <laughs> and then in another scene this is the progression first she gets patted on the behind then she gets patted on the head and then she's actually called a frightened girl mm, nice you know and it's just it's obviously she's made into a, a childlike figure who really can't, you know, help herself. It's the man who's going to take care of things, although she does have her moments, too. Um, but this book, as a lot of listeners might know, had so many movies spun off of it. You know, the first movie is kind of a classic, that one from 1979. There have been over 20 movies made wow. based on this book. Huh. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I've only seen two of them. You know, if you're looking for a horror novel that isn't full of blood and guts, which I've been thinking a lot about lately, like why did slasher movies and books get lumped into horror and not like crime? I've been mm. kind of curious about that. Because for me, mm. horror has always been more paranormal than slasher type things. Right, but and I slasher guess... isn't necessarily scary. It's I... gruesome. Exactly, you know? yeah. So yeah. I don't really, I don't, for me, that's not horror. But anyway, this Amityville horror is definitely more about paranormal stuff happening than any kind of slasher things happening. But okay, so you're confusing me because is it a novel or is it a nonfiction? It's nonfiction. Did I call it a novel again? Yeah. Yes, yeah. this is considered nonfiction. It's so funny because... Okay, I picked this up again because I recently read Riley Sager's Home Before Dark, which right. is a bit of a homage to this novel, this book. Keep calling it a novel. <laughs> oh, my God. So I wanted to revisit the Amityville Horror. So when we went on our joint jaunts last week to the library, 
I went to the fiction section looking for it on the shelf and it wasn't there. So then I went to the computer catalog and it was in nonfiction. I was like, right, it's in nonfiction because it's considered nonfiction. There have actually been a lot of lawsuits regarding the book of things being true or not true. Oh, yeah. okay. I mean, and even reading the book, like there was one scene, it's early January, it, the temperatures have been in the teens, and George looks, the main character, drives his Harley chopper to work. I was like, I don't think so. Not in New mm. York. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and it had been snowing and everything. Yeah. So some of the things, I read a little bit about some of the lawsuits and some of the inconsistencies in different editions that have come out. So you'll have to investigate that yourself, listeners, if you're interested in, in learning more. So who, I don't know if you said who it was by. Oh, Jay Anson is his name. Oh, you did. Jay you Anson. He he was a quite prolific writer. Let me see. It says um, he began as a copy boy on the New York Evening Journal in 1937. Wow. Um, he had more than 500 documentary scripts for television to his credit. And he died in 1980. Wow. So, you know, maybe the writing style with all those exclamation points had something to do with that. But, you know, right. major things happen in this book. And then you turn the page and nothing was said about it. So I think that maybe helps propel you. It's a very simple writing style. And I think that may have been one reason why it was so hugely popular. Because mm -hmm. you just so easily get drawn in and yes. the writing is easy to read. Right. Yeah. Well, and if, if anyone wants to see Chris holding up a copy of the book, reminder that we have a YouTube channel and there's a little video, like a seven minute video of us at the Durham Library on Friday. We got to go on an adventure together. Yes, we did. Maybe we should talk about that. Biblio Adventures. Let's ease right into that. Yeah, we, yeah. I had a book to pick up on hold at the Durham Public Library, which is the town just north of Guilford, where we both live. And we were talking on the phone, of, of just, you know, chatting, and you had a book to, Emily had a book to return there. So, right. you know, we miss being together so much and going out on biblio adventures to different things. And they do say that one of the worst situations is to be in a car with somebody else during this time of COVID-19. And so since the Durham Library wasn't that far, we decided to drive in our separate cars and meet there. Yeah, it was hilarious, too. We get to the library, and we pull up, and we, we even parked our cars socially distanced, I noticed. <laughs> when we both got out of our cars, they were like, you know, a space in between. We're also <laughs> used to leaving space now. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so we did. We went, and we um, had a, a look-see in the library, because this is Ooh. one of the libraries that's actually open. No restrictions at all. I mean, wearing masks and hand sanitizers, but yes. I mean, no time restrictions yeah. at all. Yeah. So that was really nice. Yeah, they did and a nice job. They had signage everywhere on the floor, on the walls. They also had their circulation slash reference desk enclosed in, you know, a plastic screen and then right. plexi. So there's just a little opening, almost like at a, you know, gas station where you just slide your books underneath for the mm -hmm. librarian to scan. So... I'm glad that they're taking such great precautions for their librarians. Yeah, I am too. And it, it's funny, it's a library I have driven past for five years and never gone in. 
So it was really lovely. As as is true with a lot of New England libraries, it's classic where there's the old original part of the library, which now isn't large enough. So over time, they built you know a new, more modern wing that attaches to it. This library was just like that. Yeah. And really nice, small, easy to navigate. They had a great selection of newer books, which I really appreciated browsing through since we're not really getting in bookstores these days. Right. So. Yeah. And I did pick up a book for the gentleman caller because they had some books for sale at the front. Chris fronted me the 50 cents because <laughs> I didn't bring my wallet. Thank you, Chris. And it's called Cooperstown. It's a novel by Eugenia Pillick. I didn't really know anything about it. I have been to Cooperstown, which is where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. Jim is a huge baseball fan, so I thought he might enjoy this. It's a, it's a work of fiction. This was her one and only novel, and it was published in 2005. That's all I know, but I thought I would just tell people about it. That's what I brought home from the library. Yeah, and I had put on hold The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimmeline. That's her young adult novel that was on the bestseller lists up in Canada for over 100 weeks just a few years ago. And I recently read her adult novel called Empire of Wild, which is coming out later this month in July. I keep forgetting that it's not out yet. Oh, I thought it was out. That's so funny. Yeah, that's it, right. July 28th or something okay, like that so is when it comes out. Know. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that. Well, I also attended a virtual event with our buddies at A Mighty Blaze. They had a chat with Anna Quinlan, who, you know, when I was listening to her, I was like, you know, I may have to stop just saying that Alice Hoffman is my favorite author. Uh-oh. I know. I love Alice Hoffman, but it could be pretty neck and neck with Anna Quinlan. I love her, and I forget how much I love her until I hear her speak. She had for years, um, she did the editorial, or I don't know if they called it an editorial, an essay at the back of Newsweek magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, personal opinion essay or something like that. Personal opinion, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then she's just a prolific author. Her most recent book is called Nanaville. And it's about her experience being a grandmother. It was a great chat. I wanted to ask you, I'm not, you know, all of um, A Mighty Blaze does all of their videos using Facebook Live. But I think you, even if you don't have a Facebook account, I think you can watch them. Is that true? I or don't not? know. I don't know the answer okay. to that. We'll have to find out. Yeah. Okay. Because they do have this great backlog now of interviews with Judy Bloom and John Irving and Tons of debut authors, and then they've also been doing where authors speak to their favorite bookstore owners and do a little tour of the bookstore, get just get information about the bookstore. So they have quite a bit of information. I looked at their website, and sadly, you know, the videos aren't available there, but I know that they're somehow cataloged on Facebook Live. We'll, we'll have more information about that on our next episode and let let folks who don't know who don't have Facebook know if there's a way they can watch them yeah yeah and if you know the answer let us know we always yeah yeah we need all the help we can get sometimes with this that's right (laughs) (laughs) did you have another biblio adventure no I missed out on the one I was going to do I don't know what happened I think it was you know I lost track of what day of the week it was, but I, yeah. so I didn't attend the one that was last week with the, uh, the author Stephen Graham Jones, who wrote The Only Good Indians, which is a horror yeah. novel I'm interested in. So I missed that, and that was through the Center for Fiction. 
You might look him up because I saw when I was looking at upcoming events, he's definitely out and about. You might be able to catch him with another set of, you know, another bookstore or another interviewer or something. Yeah. I had a really special event with my book club. I have a book club. We call ourselves the Bi-Coastal Bibliophiles because we're all across the country. We meet quarterly, although we've upped that a little bit during the time of COVID just because people were feeling the need to check in with each other a little bit more. And one of the people in the group is our buddy Russell at Ink and Paper Blog, who is a great booktube channel. Y'all should be listening to him. Your TBRs will explode. (laughs) We read the book Museum of Modern Love by Heather Rose. Chris talked about this book already on the Book Cougars, so I'm not going to go into depth about what the book's about here, but you can listen on episode 75. She spoke at length about it. And then also on episode 93, you called it out as one of your favorite books of 2019. Yeah. So it's a book now I can say we both loved because I too loved it. But Russell surprised us and arranged for the author, Heather Rose, to Zoom chat with us. Oh, how awesome. It was so lovely. Now, she's in Tasmania, mm-hmm. so we had to, you know, step outside of our normal timeline so, you know, she didn't have to be in the middle of the night or whatever to talk to us. But it was really interesting to hear her talk about this book because, just a reminder, this is a novel, but it's inspired by Marina Abramovich, who was a performance artist. And it speaks a lot about her art piece, I guess is the best way to say it, where she sat at the MoMA at a table and people could come and sit across from her. Yeah. And that was, that's what it was. Yeah. You couldn't talk. You couldn't move. You just had to sit and look at her eyes. Right. Which that's intense to do that with any human being. And you might think like, how could she possibly write a book about that? Well, she did. And she knocked it out of the park. Yeah. So she talked about how she got inspired to write the book. And she also talked about the fact that it took her 11 years to write it. Wow. And then it got turned down and turned down, publisher after publisher. And then once it was finally accepted, it won all manner of awards. It ended up really being her breakout novel. Mm-hmm. She does also write a kid series under the pseudonym Angelica Banks. Oh, wow. No idea. Who knew? Yeah. 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 So she was just delightful to speak to. Just a reminder to people about this book, The Museum of Modern Love. Such a good book. Highly recommend it. Yeah, it really is good. And and so many people haven't heard about it here in the States anyway. But the people who have read it, they're such cheerleaders for the book. It's really amazing. Yeah. And I will say I listened to it on audio and I read it and I thought it was easier. I had to go back and start reading it. It's told from different points of view and it was I was a little confused doing it straight audio. Once I read it and got in, you know, like 30 pages, then I could do both. And I did. I read and listened. So now the one thing she told us is she has a new novel out, Bruni, B-R-U-N-Y, not available in the States. And she said she can't get it picked up in the States. Really? Which is so shocking. You would think if a if a book was so such a hot seller, like her other one was, that this would be a shoe-in. But she said it's really difficult for particularly Australian authors to get published stateside. Yeah, so. it is. I mean, Australian writers are 
just hard to come by here. And I think like, you know, like there's Colleen McCullough who wrote the Thornbridge, which was so mm -hmm. huge, but you know, she lived here in Guilford, Connecticut, actually, mm -hmm. when she taught at Yale. Yeah. Um, and I think having maybe that connection here in the States maybe helped her publishing yeah. career. That is just kind of speculation on my part. Her new one might be available through Book Depository, I would guess. It's not. We looked. It's not. Wow. So we decided we were going to, our group, the Bicoastals, we're going to, you know, try to do some sort of movement to get it published here. Yeah. Not not that we have a ton of power, but we're right. going to do everything we can. Oh, that's so. good. I'll try and get my yeah. hands on a copy of it for sure, because what yeah. I've done when yeah. it's not available on Book Depository, I'll just go through an Australian, I'll go to the publisher or a bookstore in Australia. Yeah. You could do that yeah. as well. I think she said she was going to send Russell a copy and we're going to, you know, send it around oh, to neat. each other. Okay. But we're going to, we, we want more people to be able to get their hands on it than just us. So. Yeah. Did you happen to talk about what the new book is about? No, okay. we didn't. You can look it up and read about it, but you know, I already said, I don't love to do that. So, right. so I didn't do it. Upcoming Biblio Adventures? I do. I have um, one on July 21st, which is the day that this episode airs with The Strand at 7 o'clock. Amy, I don't know, never know how to say her name, Popel, P-O-E-P-P-E-L, is in conversation with Marcy Dermansky. Amy's new book is Musical Chairs, which I've heard a lot about. I really want to read it. This is going to be both a Zoom, so you can sign up for the event. I'll put that in the show notes. And they're going to stream it on Facebook Live. And lots of times when people stream on Facebook Live, then those events are recorded and you can catch them later. I, I don't know if that's true with this, but it's a guess. And then the following Tuesday, Books Are Magic. I don't know if you know about this, Chris. This is for you. Sarah Weinman. Cool. is in conversation. She's the author of The Real Lolita. And she has a new book out called Unspeakable Acts. So she's going to be talking about that. And that's with Books Are Magic, like I said. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'll definitely check that one out. What's the date on that again? Um, July 28th right. in the evening. And then Laura Littman on August 3rd, she's in conversation with Taffy Brodesser Act. Ackner, I think I always say her name wrong too. And um, she's she has a new book of essays called My Life as a Villainess. Oh, nice title. Because <laughs> she's kind of a mystery writer, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if mystery, is that the right thriller? Mystery, mystery? thriller, yeah. 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 But she's also got a background in journalism. So these are more essays, you know, that she's written. So I'm excited about that. I loved the last book, um, Lady in the Lake, mm. that she wrote. I loved that book. So. Nice. Cool. Well, I have one um, on the, my calendar so far. Um, this one is with Isabel Wilkerson on her new book that's coming out, Cast in America, The Origins of Our Discontents. And this is through the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is one of the branches of the New York Public Library System. And Emily and I were there at the Schomburg Center for an event way back in May 2019, which seems like 50 years ago now. Um, but mm -hmm. on episode 76, we had gone to see Dr. Carla Hayden, who's the librarian of the Library of Congress, Tracy K. Smith, 
poet laureate and Kevin Young, who's the director of the Schomburg Center and also the poetry editor for the New Yorker magazine. We saw them in conversation and it was a fantastic event. Um, but Isabel Wilkerson, if her name rings a bell, she's the author of The Warmth of Other Suns. Right, that's was, the one about the Great Migration, yes, right? Yes, yeah, the yeah. epic story of America's Great Mi Migration. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award for nonfiction, and she also won a Pulitzer Prize. Boy, that's one I might try to do on audio. That's been on my radar for a long time. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, I have my copy here, and it's on my TBR pile, mm -hmm. um, but it is thick let's see how many pages the paperback that i have in my hand is 620 pages which yeah. that's kind of scares me for an audiobook but maybe that would be a great way to do it mm -hmm. you know dipping in and out wherever you happen to be audio or paper i have flipped around in the book and read pieces of it here and there um and do look forward to her her new book coming out cast in america this event is august 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and you do have to register for it through the Schomburg Center, and we can put a link in the show notes about that. Yeah, they do good events, so yeah. I'm sure that's going to be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, and you know, the Schomburg Center, too, they have a really great uh, email that you can sign up to get, which will notify you about events and research opportunities, uh, research you know, collection highlights and things. That is one place I do look forward to going back to again when we are free to move about the country. Yes, I agree. And, you know, that's a good point too, Chris. Some people have been getting in touch with us and saying, you know, how are you finding these online events? And, so, you know, most bookstores now and libraries and such have email newsletters that they can send and they'll send you a little alerts about their events. And it is a really good way to track down fun stuff to do from, you know, on these couch biblio adventures that yes. we're doing now. The other thing you can do is go to author pages, you know, authors that you admire and that you know might have a new book out. Or sometimes they don't even necessarily have a new book out, but they're moderating a new author, you know, with a book out that you go to their sites and often they have an events page and you can kind of find your way to some of these events right. that way as well. The hard part I'm finding for myself is remembering. Yes. So if you sign up for them, then they send you an email reminder, which is really nice. Yeah. You know, that the event with the sign in information and all that kind of stuff. So um, that would be my only little hack is, you know, <laughs> like once you go out there and you decide there's something you want to see, actually sign up for it. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. And then um, when it comes, if you have a, you know, a smartphone or a e-calendar on your computer, make sure you set the alert reminder. Yes. If that event populates to your calendar, because that's been super helpful. Yeah. Sometimes. And I, of course, like I failed to do that with last week's event and it yeah. blew right past me. So definitely doing that. Another thing you could do too, and this is not necessarily foolproof, but you can create a Google alert for an author who you're really interested in. And then anytime they're mentioned on a page that's crawlable by Google, you'll get a notification about that. So like I have one set up for Willa Cather. So anytime mm -hmm. Cather's mentioned on an online site, I get an alert. I think I have that set up to happen daily, 
you can have it set up for you know immediate or daily or however often you want to get those alerts and again it's not foolproof but like you know emily said if a favorite author is moderating event it might pop up for you there too right yeah that's a great idea thank you for that yeah notifications on my calendar are my friend back when in the day when I was living, you know, still with kids at home, they were trained, like they heard a certain sound that my phone would make. And they were like, Mom, you're missing something. (laughs) (laughs) So now I do it. I usually if it's something super important, I set a notification for a day ahead, just so it like gets in my brain space, then I'll do an hour and 15 minutes. (laughs) That's how much of a chipmunk brain I have that I forget what's happening in front of me and I also like you don't always know what day it is so (laughs) right it does help me to, to do that what about upcoming reads well the big one for me is going to be the convenience store woman which is our upcoming read along I'm very much looking forward to this it's by Sayaka Murata and our listener Tina recently uh, mentioned on our Goodreads page that Nancy Wu narrates the audio version and she said it's really good. So I'm going to do that as well. I'm going to have the paperback and do the audio. I just posted this morning on our social media the picture of my copy. Oh wow, look at that. This book is only 163 pages and I think I have 350 tabs in it. (laughs) I love this book and there wasn't a page that I passed that I didn't want to tab or make notes of so I can't wait to talk to you about it so just so listeners know we're going to be talking about that on the episode that airs on August 4th so if you can get comments to us by July 31st that'd be great and we still um, do have a few spaces in our zoom read along which will be next Sunday July 26th I'll put a link in the show notes where you can email us if you want to be a part of that. Yeah, so please do that because we won't be posting the link for that publicly. We're only sending that link to people who sign up for obvious reasons. So again, that's July 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We'd love to have you join us in conversation. So my upcoming read is um, Saving Ruby King by Catherine Adele West. Yes, I've been seeing that book talk yes, about a lot it's everywhere and I was thrilled to get it from the library I put it on request actually you know what they didn't have it I did I recommended to my library and then the way our library works is if you recommend and they decide to purchase it you're automatically in the queue so I got an email and I downloaded it right away and that's going to be my treat at the end of the day today I'm going to step into that one I'm really excited that's yeah great. And then the other one is um, a book that Chris and I have both ordered called Beyond Ally, The Pursuit of Racial Justice by Dr. Misa Akbar. Yes, we just had a fantastic interview with Dr. Akbar and Emily read her previous book called Urban Trauma. Right, Urban Trauma, A Legacy of Racism. And I talked about that on episode 104 And we're really excited to share this interview with Dr. Akbar with you. A lot of us are wanting to be better allies. We don't necessarily have the tools in our toolkit to do so, which is why Dr. Akbar decided to publish this book. They actually pushed it out. I don't think it was due to publish until the fall, but they moved it up till July because um, a lot of us are looking for some tools. 
And this book provides it. We're so happy today to be with Dr. Misa Akbar. She's a thought leader and expert in racial trauma, allyship, diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's a board-certified clinical psychologist and assistant clinical professor at Yale University School of Medicine. She's the CEO and founder of Integrated Wellness Group, a psychotherapy practice specializing in treating race-based trauma since 2008. And she also represents the American Psychological Association at the United Nations. Dr. Akbar is also the author of two books. Her first was Urban Trauma, A Legacy of Racism, which Emily talked about on episode 104. And her new book, which just released, is Beyond Ally, The Pursuit of Racial Justice. Welcome, Dr. Akbar. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I am so delighted to have this conversation with you both. And as if that introduction wasn't enough, (laughs) I also got to know Dr. Akbar by attending, I guess, a Zoom convening, which we're all doing a lot of these days, via the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven. And Dr. Akbar sits on the board of the Community Foundation as well. So we are pretty sure you don't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I might read my next book. I don't sleep. So um, the convening was actually about caring for mental health during the time of COVID. And I was so taken by the way that you handled the session. You were the moderator. And when I found out that you had a book about five minutes after the convening was over, I had already downloaded the book and started reading it. I was very excited. And the book, the first book uh, is the one we're talking about, which is about urban trauma. And can you talk a little bit about how you came to write it and what the the framework is that you identified in that book. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that my career has been built around the thought that urban trauma and to some extent, you know, the umbrella that's encapsulated by urban trauma, which is race-based trauma, has been, you know, my passion from the beginning. I will very openly share that I think that as a child growing up, I experienced urban trauma in a variety of different ways and didn't quite know what to do with all the energy that I, you know, was receiving from the world in terms of understanding who I am within this context, societal context, and within this space and trying to create identity around that, feeling often lost being um, a victim of, you know, uh, family dysfunction and community violence and a lot of different aspects of my upbringing that confused me. And then choosing at some point in my early adolescence that I wanted to support young children and middle-aged children and adolescents into that, that may be experiencing things that were similar to what I experienced and helping them get to the other side of that. Because I did believe that there was a way for me to heal. I just didn't know how to. And the more that then I delved into the science of behavioral health, understanding behavior and the mechanisms around psychology, the more that I understood that this was a framework that I needed 
my community and my people to understand so that we're not over pathologizing a accurate response to systemic and structural racism. And at the same time, offering opportunities to go just from merely surviving into thriving, you know, and that's not easy. We're, we're seeing that now more than ever because we have no option but to, you know, we, we're a captive audience right now and literally captive, right? Captive to our homes, captive to our space. COVID created the perfect storm that for good or for bad allowed us to see how bad we are in terms of race relations in this country. And so, you know, it, it highlighted the work that I've been talking about for a really long time that oftentimes people were like, yeah, okay, I know, we hear you. And then now it's like, oh, wow, this is really relevant, you know? Mm-hmm. So that that's how it sort of came into fruition. One more thing that I want to say about that is that for me, the commitment was always to making sure that I was going to use my knowledge and my life experience and everything that I had spent my my professional career developing focused on my people, on my community, on helping them to understand and to have knowledge and to have words by which we can communicate with one another around our traumatic experiences. So that, that was the birth of urban trauma. And the framework captures three major components, the historical, iterations of racism that have happened in this country dating back to transatlantic and slavery and and the entire establishment of enslavement to now, you know, with uh, police brutality and the killing of unarmed men post mass incarceration and the continuation of that um, and et cetera. And it looks at the biological because we've identified that there are genetic contributors to a trauma gene that we carry that is impacted and affected by continual exposure to toxic stress. And then three, the environmental factors that continue to show up in our lives that cause us to respond negatively and activate all of these components that are sort of co-occurring at the same time. So, you know, and a good example of that is If I'm a person of color or if I'm a black male and I'm watching videos of black unarmed men being profiled and killed, that's an environmental factor that triggers the trauma over and over and over and over again. So those three components are co-occurring in urban trauma. And that's what leads to then different behaviors that we manifest because they're happening all at the same time. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason this book is so important because it also does help us understand and place what's happening today. Yeah. And that's a really important thing for all of us to understand who are captive audience right now and want to help be part of the solution. But being part of the solution is also understanding the problem, right? I mean, that might sound so simple, but it isn't always so simple to understand because all of us have different life experience. Yeah. And it's understanding the problem and it's understanding that it's also a problem that's existed for generations that we haven't been able to disrupt because we are resistant to thinking about that history plays a role in cycles repeating themselves. 
And when we over, you know, when we say things that are dismissive, like slavery happened 400 years ago, why do we have to keep talking about this? Then we dismiss the core factors that slavery was nothing less than a very dehumanizing way to exert racism, right? And so the core, when you unpack it, it's still anchored in racism, whether we're talking about slavery or mass incarceration. Once we unpack that, that's what we need to target, not the structures that root themselves up each time that the new iteration of racism is being developed. Because my theory is that, okay, well, we're in 2020. There are many of them that are rooting up. We're seeing it in this very divisive society that we're in right now, right? And who knows which one is going to anchor next, right? Because we haven't gotten to the root of the problem, right? Which is dismantling racism. That's the root, right? If we get there and we uproot that, now we can have a different conversation. Right. Yeah. You know, I've been reading some articles that you've written and watched videos that you've done. And I was really struck by one story you shared about uh, these two professors that you had one who was racist, and the other one who was an ally. Uh, but you talk about how her allyship was flawed because she had her own issues uh, as a lesbian being othered. So she did her best to try and be an ally, but she couldn't be. And during Pride Month this year, I've had some interesting conversations with white gays. They want to support black lives, of course, but they also felt like, well, what about us? You know, we still have our stuff that we're working on, our our own oppressions. And so we really wanted to ask you today to talk about how we can be allies when, you know, we all have our different traumas and and different baggage that we bring. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I have, I certainly have my opinion about it. Many people may not share it. Um, but I think that, again, I always ground my facts on history, right? And before our society truly understood what other groups were feeling in terms of oppression and lifted that to get equity in different spaces, whether that's in the LGBT, you know, QI plus community, whether that's in other communities, uh, Latinx, you know, and other POCs, there was always a historical battle, at least in this country, that was led by African-Americans, right? If you look at all the way from the freedom from enslavement, and that came at a cost, right? And it didn't come during the Emancipation Proclamation. It came much later, as we know now that Juneteenth is a thing, right? When we look at, at that, and when we look at the historical dehumanization aspect of the struggle of Black people in this country, and who's been at the forefront of the battle, it has been Black America. And what I say is that if we were to come together in solidarity around that agenda, that we can all benefit from the liberties and freedoms once Black lives matter, right? So if Black lives can matter, And if we can rally in solidarity, all groups that are oppressed, right, instead of playing the oppression Olympics and who's more oppressed than another, if we can rally around making sure that 
if you are black in this country, you will survive going to the grocery store. You will survive coming from a corner bodega. You will survive leaving a store or sleeping in your home or barbecuing or all the host of other scenarios that I can paint for you. And if that can happen, then we can have broader conversations about how each group can support one another. And I think that that's tough for people to to think about when they have their own personal struggle. If I'm down, if I feel oppressed, if I feel like my liberties and my justice has been compromised, how can I support someone else, right? And what I say to that is that we can have equity in all spaces, but we will need the commitment to be able to come together and to say a human life, a black life matters enough that I can put what's oppressing me aside right now to make sure that this happens. And then we can share in the agenda afterwards, right? So that's my personal feeling about that. And again, I, I, you know, I don't know if others will share that, but that's certainly the way that I see it. Yeah, I think it gets a lot to the, uh, you know, the scarcity mentality that, you know, there's only so much equality as if it's some kind of pie and yeah. everybody, you know, gets their share when really it's a pie that we all should enjoy. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that's the way that it's been. That's the narrative, right? Right. That if you give, if you give up a little bit of what you have to give to me so that I can get ahead, it means that you're losing, you know, capitalism developed that in us. It ingrained it in the competitive nature of the rat race. And it's unfortunate because I think that that's anchored sort of like in the way that when we think about white supremacy and we think about what it's about, you know, it's this idea that I have to, I am superior. I have to be ahead. I have to be better. Right. And in fact, that is the antithesis to equality and equity. And so when we all get just a little bit of the pie, just a little bit ahead, we don't want to give up that position because then we have a little bit of power And what would it mean for us if we gave that up to help another group that perhaps is even more disenfranchised than us? You know, in in my new book, I talk about when you're an equity broker, you're prepared to give up your seat at the table. And my gosh, what a visceral reaction people have to that. Like, I have to give up my seat? Right. I'm not giving up my seat. You know how long it took me to get the seat, you know? And and it is scary. Mm -hmm. But... That's how ally, that's how, you know, beyond allyship works. That's how equity brokering works. You are building a bridge. You are making sure that there is movement and that whatever is there to disrupt or disturb the possibility for justice for all people, then, you know, as an equity broker, you're making sure that you're using your power and your privilege to remove those barriers. Mm-hmm. I really like how you look at the big picture in the historical but then, you know, bringing it to the personal and like, what can we do? I, I really admire the work that you're doing. It's, I think it's going to help change things for the better. Thank yeah, you. One, of, one of the things about um, the book Urban Trauma that I felt like you did really well was to bring the personal in. I'm glad that Chris used that term because you share your own personal story, but then you also share the stories of some of your clients in your practice. 
And I do, you know, I personally had an epiphany as I was reading it about my own trauma. And I think that for us to be able to step away from, I love the term you use, the oppression Olympics, we have to understand our place in society, right? Our roles in our family and our community. And then I think we do feel less threatened about our position, and can be more open and to lift all, which is really ultimately the goal and to understand each other. You know, you have to be able to step out of your own self a little bit, I think, to understand others. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you another, I think contextualizing the examples really help, right? So I'm a light-skinned Afro-Caribbean woman, right? And if I don't have a moment where I don't acknowledge that my racial ambiguity gives me more opportunities than my darker skin, black brothers and sisters, then I'm in a space of power that is not conducive to the collective good, right? I have to acknowledge that. I have to acknowledge that my, you know, because people can't pin where I'm from, my name, my look, it likely opens doors for me. My education gives me privilege. You know, uh, my economic background gives me privilege. There are a number of ways that I am also privileged that is different, you know, than others in my community. And so for me to be able to hold space for them means that sometimes I have to get out of the way. Mm. I got to get out of the way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I also have to celebrate. So as much as I'm capable of, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lift the people who are doing the work. I'm going to lift others around me that I know have the potential and perhaps will not have the same access because they don't look like me or they don't, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have the credentials that I have, whatever other judgments will be made by their appearances. But if I was caught up in this idea, like, well, I'm, I was traumatized and I come from an oppressed group and I'm also a person, like, you know, a person of color. How can I have privilege? Yeah. Yeah. That's right? a really yeah. interesting point. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's ignorant. Mm-hmm. I'm operating from a place of ignorance when I know better. Yeah. And, I, and if I know better, I need to do better, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm, that, that's why I was trying to make sure, like, I answered that question from a place of, like, we all have our moments where it's like, you know what, in this one thing, I've got more privilege than you do. And if I can own that, I won't be insecure about it. And I'll get out of your way and lift you up so that you can get the message along. Because if you win, I win. Right. Mm-hmm. Here you. Yeah. 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 And you won't be threatened by it. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. won't. You yeah. won't. Because like you said about scarcity and abundance, if I believe in abundance, there's enough for both of us. Yeah. There is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And whatever that enough means to us, we'll celebrate that together. Yeah. Not apart. Yeah. Together. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Akbar, can you tell us, uh, just so our listeners know how to get your books? Because we want to make sure they're in people's hands. 
Well, today is the big release date. It is such an exciting day for me. Um, <laughs> like I'm like giddy all day. I'm just like, running around the house. So you can get today. We're pushing um, for you to get it on Amazon. So please go on Amazon.com. The book is ready and available. We've actually discounted the book for the next week as a promotional um, discount. And, you know, I implore you, buy the book. Um, Tell a friend to buy the book. If you're a person of color and you're tired of having to explain the process of allyship, buy the book for a colleague or a friend and help them understand so you don't have to be the catalyst. If you are a white ally who is in any level of the allyship process, buy the book for yourself and buy the book for a family member or a friend. I think it's so important to share this information and for us to all be, um, there's too many resources out there to sort of say like, I just didn't know, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and this is a book that's gonna, it's a call to action. It's going to move you from this sort of days of confusion or perhaps not knowing that followed suit after the racial unrest and things unearthed to now like, here are my action steps. And within my boundary of where I can be in allyship, this is what I can do. And I give clear, clear steps and examples of what that looks like. That's wonderful. Can you tell us the title again? Yes, it's called Beyond Ally, The Pursuit of Racial Justice. You know, it's so lovely to have a guest on the podcast that is part of the solution. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, for writing from your heart and helping the society that we're all a part of so we can all help to lift it up. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's so nice being here with both of you. Well, I'm so happy that Emily ran into you um, at that yeah. meeting because it's really been great to learn about you and your work and it seems like everybody needs to get your book. And if you know, if you guys do like a, the other thing I want to, I was talking to my team about this is that as book clubs are coming together, so if you do, you know, if you do a reading of a book and then the group wants to come together, I'd be more than happy to do like a cameo. And especially because I want to make sure that when you get to the part about the allyship model, the allyship model is so important to the progression of allyship. Because I think what it does is that it both provides acceptance if, let's say, you're at the beginning stages of a supporter and that's the only thing that you can do. And then it also provides challenge. Like, is that the only thing that you can do or do you want to do more? You know, so we, we really curated it. So it does a nice job of saying like, don't feel guilty if all you can do is be a supporter. It's okay. But Hey, support the right way. And here's the right way. Right. And don't say you're like an equity broker when all you can be is a supporter, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Because if you say you're that, then we're going to hold you to that, right? <laughs> right, yeah. right. And yeah. don't feel guilty about it either. I mean, yeah. anything you can provide that's, you know, but understanding the, the position you're playing, that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah. I've talked about it as a highway. Like if, hey, if, if our goal is all like, you know, racial equity, there are so many lanes in a highway. There's like the low, you know, you the 45 speed lane, the, the middle lane that kind of crosses over. There's a fast lane. 
you can choose whatever lane you need to be on that matches your personality and your capacity mm-hmm. because work is, it's emotionally draining. It's exhausting. And there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of mistakes that are made along the way, you know, as, as people are new learners in, in this process. Yeah. So. yeah. That's one of my real things is I want to feel like I can also have vulnerable conversations with people and, Part of the vulnerability is knowing that I'm coming from a position as a white woman, you know, with privilege. And I just, as much as I can try to intellectualize the experience of others, those aren't my experiences. So I know I'm going to make mistakes when I'm talking about it and talking to people about it. And we have to feel like we can do that with each other, you know? Yeah. To me, that's one of the most important parts about being an ally. Yeah. 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 And and not shut down, right? Like if there's a yeah. mistake that is made and then there's a visceral reaction to that mistake, keep going. Right. Yes. It's yeah. okay. It's okay. Like normalizing that. Yeah, people are mad right now. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's not about me personally, but maybe I hurt somebody and I just need to better understand that. You know, like exactly. how how do I recover? Because I think that we talked a lot about ally fatigue. And that people are like, everybody was like scrambling, doing affinity groups and buying books and book clubs and this and rallies and protests and whatever. And it's like, okay, I'm tired now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't even do it again. <laughs> you yeah. know, and but it's there's, like, there's so much work to be done. Yeah. So yeah. We've yeah. Gotta, we got to keep in the game. So can I ask you, if you have a minute for one more question, I just want to ask you, because you've been doing this work for so long, do you feel like anything's different this time? Yeah. I do actually. And what do you think? Could you talk about that just a little bit? I think that the biggest and primary difference that I see is that there are a lot more white people, at least in my immediate community, but also in the the different um, arenas in which I've been speaking on that are saying, okay, this is not okay. That's a big deal, right? Like this is not okay. Not like yeah, I don't think that exists anymore, which is invalidation. I'm seeing a lot more validation. I do see it and it's not okay, right? Like there's an and. There's also a willingness to learn and putting that learning on themselves as a personal responsibility versus saying, oh, the diversity person can deal with that or the black faculty can talk to all the other students of color or the, you know, the the one board member that deals with communities of color will tackle that. So I'm seeing a lot more shared responsibility and ownership, right? So the validation and the willingness to learn, more shared responsibility and a what I'm saying is a burning desire for a call to action or a next step, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that different people are in different levels of the process. So some people are still learning like, okay, let me try to understand this. So I grew up poor. I'm white. I grew up very poor in a in a single-headed household home with five siblings and didn't really have much. But how do I have privilege? That's a mm-hmm. great question. That's a fantastic question. Let's start there. And so like versus like, no way, no way. Denial. There's no way. I I will not accept 
the idea or have identity around privilege because I grew up poor and white. Now the conversation is, well, okay, explain to me how it is that I have, that's, you see the difference there? Yes. That's what I'm seeing. A lot of that, like, okay, okay, I I get it. I get it. Let's, let's talk that through. And I think that that leads to those genuine conversations that we need to have in order to, first of all, deal with some of the narratives that have been placed in our heads through the media, through societal miscommunication or sometimes targeted communication that has been misleading. And it allows us to create a new narrative and to challenge the narratives that have been put forth. Uh, One more example before we go, I hear a lot of debate around like, well, People are talking about police brutality and the killing of unarmed black men, but is anybody addressing black on black crime? Mm. And so now conversations are, let's look at what the data says around this, right? Mm -hmm. Black on black crime is not statistically significantly more than white on white crime. In fact, when you look at crime between racial groups, higher levels of crime tend to happen within groups versus between groups, right? We tend to see that. So we have statistics like something like, okay, 90% of crime that happens in the black community is black on black. 86% that happens in the white community is white on white. Mm -hmm. No statistical differences. Yeah. Right. What comes up as a point of discussion is black on black crime. Yeah. white crime you see what I'm saying oh yeah yes like I'm from Chicago and the conversations there are just ridiculous because of the way the news you know the the way things are covered with the shootings that happen in certain communities and it's really sad it's really almost impossible to have conversations I'm really looking forward to reading your book as a tool to to help me start having some of those conversations with people who I've always who I've kind of written off as being kind of hopeless you know, maybe maybe there's a chance now to get some yeah. light in there. Yeah, especially with some tools in your toolbox. Yeah. I mean, that's what's great about this book. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that the, you can leverage that conversation by saying like, okay, well, I'm not asking you to be, you know, uh, uh, an accomplice or co-conspirator, but do you have enough curiosity? And it looks to me like some of the actions that you already take already fall in the supporter level. So whether you knew it or not, you were already supporting some of these initiatives, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's the thing that sometimes we don't even realize what we're doing because we don't know what to call it. But it, you're active in some ways or another towards a progression of allyship. So, yeah, so I, I hope that, that that helps in terms of clarifying that and, and the what I see that right now is a, yeah, I'm going to say a slice of hope. I'm glad I was just going to say, please tell <laughs> yeah. me you feel hopeful. Yeah. 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 yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. Thank yeah. you. You're thank welcome. You. And thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to talk with us today on your release day. I'm sure you're so yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes. I mean, I know, you know, the thing that people forget is someone was working on a book long before its release, but it does sound like it's coming out at the perfect time. So yeah. that's wonderful. Well, thank Good you. Good luck with all your other conversations today yes. and moving forward. And we really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Yay. Oh, you guys are awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you. All right, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.